With a maximum elevation of 175 metres or 561 feet, Denmark is one of the flattest countries on earth. Yet, it's produced some of the world's best climbers and cross-country mountain bikers. The latest of which is Simon Andreasen, who recently won an elite men's cross-country Olympic World Cup round. And today, we're going to dig into his training to find out how a mountain biker from Denmark wins a mountain bike World Cup. Yo-ho, and welcome back to Ride Better, Faster, a show about cycling training and racing. I'm Damien Roos. In this episode, we get down and dirty with 18 weeks of training before an elite men's mountain bike World Cup win, taking a look at the guy behind the training as well. Plus, a core body temperature wearable. Can you get big performance gains from knowing your core temp in real time? We'll find out. Simon Andreasen is not a new name in mountain biking, having run and won at every level of the sport from the age of six or seven, hitting the international race scene in 2014 with wins at the Under-19 World Cups and back-to-back world champ titles in the Under-19 category. He progressed steadily in the U23 category with a World Cup win and a smattering of second and third places. Add an Olympic berth thrown in for good measure, and you've got a guy that has been racing at the top level for a long time. But it was with his win in his first elite World Cup race that got my attention. So not only was I pumped to see that he's a Dane, he also literally lives up the road from me, trains on the same roads and trails I ride, and the most important part, puts all his rides on Strava. And as soon as I saw this, there was nothing left to do but drop everything and do a deep dive into his lead-up to the World Cup win. But the story of an athlete's training is also the story of an athlete's coach. In this case, Thomas Bone. We get an idea of the what and why of Thomas because he has published a couple of great articles on the ride of another one of his athletes and quote, better half and training partner, Annika Langvad. You might have heard of her. These articles go through the progression of Langvad and explains his methods, which I'll summarize in a second. Firstly, at the top of his article, he has a paragraph, which I think is apt to this episode as well. And it goes, a quick warning before we start. This post will give you no secret tips on why Annika is fast on a bike. It won't deliver any magic bullet or shortcuts to success. The training is very much based on plain and boring time on the bike, and we're not reinventing the wheel in any way. And like Annika says, it's just a lot of work, doubt, hardship, and a couple of tears now and then. But anyway, back to Thomas, a mountain biker since the early 90s, and in his words, even though I rode at an elite level, I realized I had to come up with something else, and better to do, and it became an academic career. This led to a PhD degree. I'm not sure of the mix between his academic position and coaching at the moment, but he does coach the country's top mountain bikers, Annika, Simon, and Sebastian Finney. He also rides a lot with his athletes and is no slouch with a critical power of 315 watts on a good day. And being an assistant professor in integrative physiology, the next two quotes from a message board might surprise you. If your coach makes things complicated, you should probably find a new one. And... Training, coaching is not science. I usually say that if for you as an athlete know how to overload the system in order to trigger adaptions and intuitively know when to rest, you're golden. 
and you don't necessarily need any specific or formal trainer education for that. Reading these, I thought of this quote from Orange Book. Average people think the complex is simple. Smart people make the complex sound simple. His knowledge at this point must be pretty deep, but it's not about showing off that knowledge, but using it to make decisions and educate his athletes. This comes across in his explanation of the training model he uses in his coaching. He uses six training zones calculated from critical power. Why critical power? Well, I'll quote him. I like working with models that are openly shared and published so that others can confirm or reject the concepts. Hence, the use of CP and not MFDP, modeled FDP. Going on to say, you don't need to understand the model to use it. That's what WKO4 and Golden Cheetah will do for you. I will argue that understanding the underlying concept will make you think about what you're doing and what it is intended for. When I sit down and explain the basics to athletes, they almost always get a aha experience. Nine out of 10 times, the athlete becomes better at performing intervals and understanding what the training purpose is. And this gives us a nice insight into what it would be like as an athlete working with Thomas. Now, now a little bit more on Thomas's training philosophy. It's a bit hard to nail down. The intensity distribution he showed with Annika is polarized-ish, with approximately 75% of total cycling time spent in zone 1 or zone 2. But Simon's training, however, has some tempo efforts and a little time at threshold. But this time at threshold might be testing the legs rather than training the aerobic system. That's my guess, but of course it is hard to know exactly what the motivation is behind every session. But one thing is clear, of course cycling is an aerobic sport and even mountain bikers need their aerobic system and the importance of this aerobic system to mountain bikers was highlighted in a paper Thomas helped write called Physiological Determinants of Elite Mountain Bike Cross-Country Olympic Performance that was published in the Journal of Sports Science in November 2018. The measurements done in and outside the lab showed that repeated sprint performance didn't correlate as strongly with performance as some of the aerobic measurements. That's not to say that repeated sprint performance is not important. And although each cross-country Olympic race will differ, typically an athlete will spend approximately 35% of the full duration of their race, around 90 minutes for elite categories, at a power output above their threshold. And finally, before we get into the actual training here, let's take a quick primer on cross-country Olympic or XCO races. An XCO race is a mass start event that typically lasts 90 to 105 minutes and takes place over numerous laps of a predetermined course. The course usually consists of climbs, technical descents, and single track. A single lap of an XCO circuit will have a large amount of single track, which may make passing slower riders tricky. Riders' starting position is determined based on the ranking relevant to the specific race, and starting towards the back of the field will result in an immediate disadvantage. So now I think we've covered all the background that we need. Let's get back to the athlete of the moment, Simon Andreasen. He's based in Copenhagen and either due to travel restrictions or a unique year, didn't travel in the period we're looking at, which is June 1 to October 4, 2020, except for one week doing some big miles in Girona and three European races. We start with a mid-year base phase from June 1, after a week of mostly chilling at the end of May, and for the first three weeks, it consists of a mix of volume as zone 2 power, short talk, 
and strength endurance efforts at tempo and something called downhill reps. Total hours are 21, 22, and 18. One interesting side note is the time spent on the mountain bike. I'd say 90% of the riding is done on the mountain bike. Even if there's not a lot of actual mountain biking, gravel loops seem to be a favorite of Simon's. So these first three weeks, here's an example of some of the workouts. The zone two work is done in lots of three, four, and five hour rides, sometimes with efforts after a warm up, and sometimes on their own. Something I noticed early on was Simon even does his recovery rides in zone two. It feels like it's definitely a case of an athlete that needs a coach to tell them to slow down rather than to motivate them to do more. And I definitely know this feeling as a coach. In the first week, we see short efforts start immediately on day three and consist of mountain bike loops with four by 45 seconds on at 150% of FTP with a minute and a half rest between each, followed by three times one minute and 15 second efforts at 130% of FTP with five minutes rest after each one of those. Then the next day, there's some short torque efforts. 10 times 15 seconds all out with five minutes rest. And these efforts are done on a slight downhill and are probably seated and build from 45 RPM to 75 RPM. Then we get to some traditional big gear strength endurance with five by 30 minutes at 80 to 85% of FTP at 65 RPM with 15 minutes rest between each. That is an awesome session. In the following weeks, we see more tempo efforts two times 30 minutes with 25 minutes rest on one day, the 10 time 15 second torque efforts again, as well as the five by 30 minute strength endurance efforts again. The two other new types of sessions that pop up are the downhill reps, which are eight by three minute mountain bike laps, which seem to focus on skills more than anything else. And finally, in the last week, there are two days with 60 minute efforts at 100% of FTP, which what I can gather peaks at around 420 watts and at Simon's race weight, which is listed as 68 kilograms. So watts per kilogram of 6.18. That sounds about right from what I know of elite level mountain bikers. Next up is the big week in Girona. And after a 20 hour drive each way, he spends 28 hours on the bike collecting vertical meters. Now, this is something I want to address here. I mentioned in the intro that Denmark is a flat country and it's true but you can rack up some vertical miles on a ride if you are creative and know where all the bumps are. An example of this, say you're on a 70 kilometer ride, you can get around 500 meters of vert and you can extrapolate from there. It's not just doing the same loops and hills, there are sort of small bumps and climbs that you can find everywhere. And considering that the last mountain bike world cup and the Danish national mountain bike champs had approximately 1000 meters of climbing in it. It's not hard to get the same stimulus on a ride saying that though this week in Girona has him climbing approximately 12,000 meters, double what he would do in an average week in Denmark. To me, this is as good for the spirit as much as it is for the legs. And in this week in Girona, there were some efforts, including what might have been a test, but I can't confirm it for sure. But we can see a nine minute effort at FTP, two times 20 minutes at 85% of FTP, and two by six minutes at 95% of FTP, and a 13 minute effort at 85%, and another 13 minute at 105% of FTP. The following week, 
to be expected, is a rest week. But of course, a pro rest week is full of endurance, with total hours of around 17 and a half. We do see the introduction of work above threshold again, with a five by three minute at 135% of FTP, with three and a half minutes rest between each. But that is it. Because overall, this week and the next are all about endurance, with a short time trial, eight kilometer time trial to test the legs, being the only intensity in the second week, which is a 20-hour week. Now we've made it to week six, and it's a race week, but there's no stopping the efforts as this seems like the next block of training. Note we are in mid-July by now and still 11 weeks away from the World Cup races. I would be interested in hearing the reasoning behind the efforts that are in this week because they just stand out on their own. These durations are not repeated again in the entire build-up, my suspicion is that they're there to remind the body what it's like to hurt rather than to elicit a specific response. The efforts are four by three minutes at 135% with three and a half minutes rest and three by four minutes at 140% of FTP with five minutes rest between each. They're done on shorter, so three and two hour ride days, and they're separated by a four and a half hour endurance ride in the middle, the day in the middle. Then it's about recovery, travel, course recon before getting 12th in the race, which is a Swiss Cup race. At the start of the next week, we finally see a rare rest day and another 19 and a half hour week of endurance, one day only that includes efforts. It's some surges or spikes that are nine by 30 seconds all out, followed by 12 minutes at 60% of FTP. That's a kind of solid session, but we'll see later on that rest, that 12 minutes slowly starts to creep up. In the following two weeks, volume drops slightly, 18 hours and 15 and a half hours. But that 15 and a half hour week has a race in it. But we can see him playing the long game here because after that race, he does a two hour ride and a three hour endurance ride the day after. But in these weeks, again, we have some above threshold work at 50 seconds and 20 seconds. So two sessions of four by 50 seconds with a two minutes rest and one session of five by 20 seconds with six and a half minutes rest between each. And there's two by 30 seconds with three minutes rest snuck on the end of that session. All leading to the race, a Czech cup where he placed second. Now we will round out this base phase with the weeks 11 and 12, and it's another new above threshold duration, four by 60 seconds with one and a half minutes rest, and some spikes, this time at tempo rather than the 60% of FTP. So six times 10 seconds, followed by 12 minutes at tempo. But it was the next week that all the action took place, the Swiss Epic, a big week of races, ending up with nearly 21 hours on the bike. And so we move into the final five weeks before the big day. By the way, I hope this is translating well in audio. I know it's probably a bit hard to follow, but the nitty gritty details are often missed. And it's the stuff that has the most interesting parts, the stuff I find most interesting and hopefully you do too. And when it comes to the start of these final five weeks, this week started with four by 30 second sprints at 140% of FTP with 12 minutes rest between each. Overall, it was a cruisy week with some course practice and openers on the Saturday for another race on the Sunday. The openers, if you're interested, were about 50 minutes and they went like this. Five minutes at 100%, three minutes at zone two, two minutes at 120%, three minutes at zone two, and one minute at 130%. 
And then the race itself was Zanzenberg C1 XEO race, but it was a DNF in hellish mud. Absolute bummer. Then in the next three weeks, we really start to see some intensity being added. The first week here finishes with a second place in the Danish Marathon Nationals. But earlier in the week, there was five by three minutes of 15.30, so 15 seconds on, 30 seconds rest. But interestingly, the 15 seconds was all out. The 30 seconds was 115% of FTP with 15 minutes rest between each. And then the next day, there was more tempo spikes with six times 10 seconds, followed by 12 minutes at 80% of FTP. This session is repeated on the same day in the next week but not after four by five minutes at FTP with 15 minutes rest the day before. And then something even rarer happens. Simon gets an entire weekend off. And it must be in preparation for the next week, which looks like to be an overload week. The last week of real training and third longest week of this build from June at 21 and a half hours, there is a lot squeezed in. There seems to be a 20 minute performance test where he records 444 watts. There's six by 20 second sprints with five minutes, 40 rest. There's three by eight minutes, 40, 20s, 630 watts for the 40 seconds with five minutes recovery between each. And these types of power sessions, just so you know, are ideal prep for an XCO race. And finally, some race specific prep with three by 22 minute laps on a mountain bike course at tempo, not race pace. That is interesting. The next week is the start of his taper with an approximate 60% drop in volume. There's only one day of efforts. It's back to the tempo spikes, but reducing from six repeats to four by 10 seconds sprints and then 12 minutes at 80% of FTP. And these are done on a gravel loop on his mountain bike, if you're interested in knowing that. Then it's race day on the Saturday with the normalized power of 394 watts for the race as he's crowned the new Danish XCO champion. And it's off to Novomesto in the Czech Republic for one short course race and two XCO races. He misses the first short course race, probably due to being a first year elite, but wins the XCO with a normalized power of 345 watts, lower than his national championship win. This is after a 60 minute pre-ride in the morning and a 20 minute warm up and starting way back in the grid. All in all, we're talking about a journey of 18 years to get this win, not the 18 weeks that I've highlighted here. But again, it's interesting to see the ins and outs of a top mountain bike cross country races training, the constant 20 hour weeks, the time in zone two, and the sprinkling of above threshold work that got Simon to the top step of the podium in his debut Elite World Cup race. Maybe in the future, we can get Thomas on the show to go behind these decisions. Okay, it's time once again for The Chaser, the segment of the show where I talk about something that's probably unreleased, untested, or has nothing to do with cycling. And this time, the core body temperature monitoring device. Hopefully, saying goodbye to rectal thermometers, core is a compact sensor, 50 millimeters by 40 millimeters by eight millimeters, and it weighs 12 grams. It clips onto a heart rate strap or an armband, and it continuously measures the core body temperature. 
It costs approximately 280 USD and is available for pre-order now. So you can't get your hands on it, but you can order it. And it's a pretty neat solution compared to those rectal thermometers as it isn't intrusive and it clips onto something you're already wearing, your heart rate strap or an armband. And they have Apple and Android apps to record and analyze the data. Side note, it was used this year by Decunic Quickstep at the Tour de France and now they have signed up with the company. But the real question here is, what's it for? Like, why do you need it? And the short answer is to measure your thermoregulation or how your body deals with temperature, your core temperature. So let's get this clear. It's your core temp, not your skin temp. That's of interest here. This changes for many reasons, including environmental and biological factors, such as time of the day, Side of the temperature measurements, level of physical activity, age and sex, among others. But physical activities can also affect body temperature, and this is where they're aiming. They say that it continuously monitors the body temperature during the entire day, and that's a good method for understanding and enhancing knowledge about our health and well-being. Okay, that's a bit vague. I won't dig deeper because we really want to know about the link between core body temperature and sports performance, don't we? And on the website, they quote a paper that states that the body needs to divert cardiac output under hot conditions to dissipate heat through the skin. In other words, if we are under heat stress, most of our energy will go to try and compensate for the core body temperature. Going on to say that aerobic exercise performed in the heat is impaired compared to cool conditions. Now, there's figures on the website from one paper that says, while resting, in a thermoneutral environment, about 0.5 liters a minute of blood, which is 5 to 10% of cardiac output, is supplying the cutaneous circulation. But during heat stress, the cutaneous circulation receives up to 8 liters a minute, 50 to 70% of cardiac output. And as soon as I read those numbers, I went on a hunt to find why performance is reduced in the heat and found a 2014 study by Naibu et al. that explains... It's an interplay of multiple factors and not just core temperature that's responsible for performance decreases in the heat. The Nebo et al. paper is an excellent review of the literature, but there's still a lot that is not understood. The impact is real, though, and so researchers have looked at strategies to reduce the decrease in performance for a while now. And I found a systematic review article published in Frontiers Physiology in February 2019 that performed a meta-analysis to evaluate the effectiveness of heat mitigation strategies. So we're talking about strategies that include just having better aerobic fitness, heat acclimatization, pre-exercise cooling, and fluid ingestion. It found that aerobic fitness was found to be the most effective in terms of strategies' ability to favorably alter body core temperature, that's a bit of a mouthful, followed by heat acclimatization, then pre-exercise cooling, and lastly, fluid ingestion. It is interesting that they don't talk about external cooling with things like cooling vests or ice socks, the ones placed down the top of your jersey. Things that are already being done, but I guess core might give a reading of what is actually regulating your temp and what is just a misplaced tradition. This device can be used to help quantify all of these strategies and is another positive step in the quantification of cycling. It's not something that will give you an instant boost of power, but could add small percentage gains in certain situations. It's one for the toolbox if you are really optimizing. I can especially see it being used if you live in a hot environment or if you don't and you need to perform when traveling to one. 
at least to get some numbers behind the protocols you use. I guess that's what Dakunic Quick Step will use it for, to finally prove that it's worth digging into your grandma's pantyhose drawer. But that's it. That's all I got. Ride Better, Faster is written, hosted, and scored by me, Damien Roos. You can check out more episodes at semiprocycling.com. Until next time, ride well. <laughs>